Hey, let me guess, you hate sales. Well, you're not alone. Most of us do, and it just doesn't feel natural. We don't want to be sleazy salespeople. And hey, man, sales just turn us off. As soon as I hear that word, you're a creative, you want to go take photos, you want to make art, you want to live that dream. And how easy would it be if you didn't have to do the awkward sales bit? I get it. I'm doing a three-day workshop and I'd love for you to join me to help you be empowered with your sales and not only just love your sales, but actually have a lot of fun in it as well. Sales won't just increase your profits in your business. It's going to help you create a better client experience and overall a better experience for you in your business, especially as you make a little bit more money and you start giving your clients the attention and the products and the services that they deserve. Now, if you want to learn my tips and tricks that help me scale my wedding photography biz past the 500000 per year mark, join in. It's only $9. It's coming up and you just have to head to my website, jialong.co. That's jialong.co. Register there, buy your ticket, $9. Now, it's three days around about one to two hours per day and it's going to be game changer for you. This one, you won't want to miss. You're listening to Jai Long and this is Make Your Break. Whether you're a big-hearted creative or an aspiring entrepreneur, let's take action on your dreams. Reconnecting you with your why and giving you the how. I'm here to dish out actionable mindset tips and fun industry secrets to help you blow up your biz. From eye-opening reality checks to motivational gold, no two episodes are ever the same. So tune in weekly. Skip the FOMO and let's dive into the deep together. Hey, hey, Jai Long here. I am here to bring you some more inspiration, some more motivation, and for us to get into some deeper conversations with a lot of friends and other creative entrepreneurs. I hope you've been well. I hope you've been uh, going out there and hustling and resting and doing all the things in between, making sure that you're making your own break, making things happen for yourself. I know I have been, I've been very busy doing all the things. So today I'm actually talking to one of my staff members, uh, Jordan, Jordan Murley. He's an amazing guy. He's been with us for quite a while now and um, he helps us create a lot of content at the moment. He's creating some content uh, on my social media account. So he's helping me with some reels and things like that. He does a lot of video work, design work, organizes a lot of content. He likes to come up with campaigns for ads and things like that. And he's an all around asset for us and the team brings so much happiness to, to everybody. And um, yeah, I think it's so important to like build, build out a team where everybody gets along and uh, you can play on their strengths and, and also people can move around and change roles and, and see what best works for them. I think for myself, it's, it's so important to, to make sure that I'm surrounded by absolutely, absolutely brilliant people, of course, but also people that are playing on their strengths all the time. So I know with Jordan, his role has changed quite a few times, but he's always stepped into it and jumped into it and um, made a big thing of it. And he's doing so right now with the reels as we're trying to grow that on social media, which is really cool. So today's episode actually is more of an origin story of where I have come from to where I am today. And Jordan was actually just, he's listened to the podcast before, but he was a little bit curious on some, some of the stories some of the in-between stories that a lot of people haven't heard of before. So, or haven't heard me talk about before, you know, and I feel like I talk about stuff all the time. I'm always talking, unfortunately for me, you know, I get sick of my own voice, of course, but, um, I think today is probably going to open up a few minds and there's a few reasons why I think this is an important episode. And one reason has been, I've noticed lately people have been saying you need to be educated to have a career or to be successful, to be able to make a lot of money or to run a team or to have a business or to have a company. And I love breaking all those limiting beliefs and realizing like sometimes we don't fit in a box and sometimes that's okay. We can create our own world, we can make our own breaks and we can find those opportunities to make something of ourselves without ever listening to the haters and naysayers and the non-believers and the people that try and keep you in your lane. And you know how much I hate people keeping me in my lane. Like I've always kind of resented anybody that has tried to keep me in my lane and told me things are impossible or tried to hold me back in some way. Now, I love working towards my potential and I love seeing people around me working towards their potential. And um, 
being shamelessly themselves, you know, showing up unapologetically themselves and spreading that light so everybody can see it. So I'm really excited to share some things. Obviously, for me, sometimes it feels a little bit vulnerable sharing some of the behind the scenes stories from my childhood. And sometimes I feel like I overshare. And sometimes maybe I don't overshare, maybe I don't share enough. Maybe let me know if you think I share too much or I undershare on my Instagram handle. So go over to at jialong.co. If you enjoyed today's episode or if there was something new that you learned, if there's something that inspired you or something that motivated you or something that gave you a mindset shift or whatever it is, like head over and um, give me some love in the DMs. I get back to every single person. And yes, it's me. I personally do it myself. So many people always ask me, is this really dry? Yeah, of course. I'm always here. You know, I'm never too busy for you. So if you want to send me a direct message on Instagram, you can directly contact me and um, we can have a bit of a chat. So thank you so much for showing up and listening. Of course, I definitely feel vulnerable um, speaking about a lot of these things, but I appreciate such a welcoming and amazing audience that allows me to share so openly and, um, and bring you along on this journey. So let's get into it. All right. This is me making my break. Welcome to it with Jai Long. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, so Jai, it's cracking. I've titled this Google Doc, the Jai Long Co Reels. This started out as yeah. content combos. Um, we've now got who is Jai Long. And we've sort of gone with the fact that you're a rebel with a cause. Mm-hmm. So my intention for this conversation is to flesh out who you are, what made you who you are, how you learned to be the way you are, and just get a good picture of you rather than what we see out there. And I was just interested to see what inspired you to be a photographer, what inspired you to be business savvy. So who were your idols when you were, say, five to ten years old? Yeah, real interesting because my idol definitely was my dad. And the reason being is because, well, one of the reasons is because he played a lot of guitar. So he was really creative. And I loved how even though he was an introvert, he could play guitar to a whole room of friends and stuff and everyone would get around it and they all play. And then it kind of brought everyone together and I could see how, I don't know, like being a a creative and being an artist, like how that can bring so many people together, which I thought was a really beautiful thing like back then. And my grandfather was a painter as well. I think for me, I always seen myself as not very academically forward, like a lot of other people. So I felt like I really struggled. Like I didn't, you know, back when I was like five, six, seven, eight, nine, I didn't really go to school or anything. So I never learned to read and write. And I felt really inadequate with a lot of those things, like really self-conscious and everything. So for me, like, yeah, also like my dad also didn't finish school and he didn't have a degree in anything. And I seen that he could sort of make his way through life, even without a job. Like he still kind of got through life, still able to support the family in some aspects. And yeah, I think that really did inspire me. So when you say your dad didn't have a job, there was obviously income coming in. Like what were those revenue streams and what did they look like? So my dad, um, mostly it was just from the government. So dad would always get his, his dole check. Then I think he's sort of like prop up his dole check with a little bit of drug dealing on the side. I think that was always a little hustle going on. And then he would do little cashies where he would um, help friends sort of put their cars back together because he, he was a mechanic. He was a self-taught mechanic. He didn't do an actual apprenticeship, which I found out later but he called himself a mechanic. And, um, and so he worked on a lot of cars and stuff and then obviously always undercharged and undervalued himself and worked for free. And then I think a lot of his friends sort of walked all over him and stuff, but he would b- always bring in some sort of cash in that sense. We also got a lot of handouts as well. Like that's a thing. And I think um, it's a real interesting perspective to think that I used to be getting so many handouts, like handouts in the sense of like when we moved into our first government house to furnish it, you know, we had uh, St. Vincent's de Paul come around with a big truck and they offload. So anyone in our position, they would just like offload a whole house worth of furniture of stuff that they didn't sell basically. And then, you know, we felt rich because we got, oh shit, we've got all this stuff. It's pretty amazing. And then same thing for bills and food and stuff. You could go in, hop in line and, and you'd actually get vouchers for fuel, vouchers for food, vouchers for bills, things like that. So we lived off a lot of, um, a lot of charity work, I think. So that's early 80s, what, Byron Bay? That's early, that's 90s, yep. 90s, early yeah, 90s. Yeah. Just trying to make you sound older than what you are there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what about mum growing up? Was she was she hustling any side hustles? I don't really know much. My mum was very much like a stay-at-home mum and she had a lot of kids. So she had a lot on her plate. 
having a lot of kids is not the issue. It's like back in those days when you're living in a house, like I think about my mum's shoes, but we didn't have simple things like a wash machine, you know, so it would be like a big deal to wash all the kids' stuff. And and back then, you know, we didn't use like disposable nappies and stuff for my brothers and sisters or because it was expensive. So it was a lot of like, you know, getting in and helping mum wash all our clothes in the bathtub and like, you know, not having much money and, and water bills and stuff meant it's like a lot of us all had to have baths together and like things like that. And then if we're having a bath together, we might as well all be cleaning our clothes and sort of being on that train and helping mum wherever we can. So I think mum um, did it pretty tough and she had a lot on her plate just looking after, I guess, my dad and then all of us kids. And we were all wild kids, you know, as you can imagine. <laughs> all right. So you all, I mean, it's been wild at home. When you started going to school, well, what did that look like? Were you, were you a mathlete? Were you into sports? Were like, where did you see yourself <laughs> going from there? Yeah. So I was always horrible at sport and I was horrible, basically everything except wheeling and dealing and talking. I could talk to anyone anywhere all the time. And so I kind of had the gift of the gap where I could walk, like I could, I remember the first day of school and one of my good friends was actually in the classroom and he, I remember the day he put his head down and he was trying not to know, like put his hand up that he knew me. And I was like, straight up, I'm like, hey man, what's going on? And I walked straight to the back of the class and he's like, oh, okay. First day of school, I was in year three, I think, year three or year four. And it was a bizarre concept because all of a sudden everyone's wearing uniforms, everyone's dressed the same. I was old enough to understand that stuff because I wasn't like a baby, you know? Yeah, it was just super, super interesting. Um, I remember I've heard some, I've heard a few inside stories here, but what were some of your first hustles? I remember there's, there's a few coins that come to mind, but I think are hilarious. Yeah, I think with school, there was a school was just like an interesting whole journey. Like one thing was I made a lot of friends with the teachers. I actually made friends with the teachers more so than all the kids because I could always think a little bit older than I was. And I've seen opportunities everywhere. So it was really hard for me because at this stage when I went to this school, we lived in a teepee slash a tent. We lived in a teepee and a tent in the local trailer park. And it was really hard to, like, I didn't want anyone to know. Like my biggest insecurity was someone would find out that we didn't live in a house. So that was like really hard. So I'd put up a big persona that I was like tougher than I am. And I wouldn't let anyone over because, you know, something else gone at home. My dad dealed a lot of just like weed and things like that. And my friends all knew it because they, he was friends dealing to their parents. And so then I got onto the hustle train where kids would ask me to buy some weed. And so I'd go home, get some grass clippings, get some oregano, shake it all together. And I'd start selling weed to the kids. And they didn't realize for a long time that it wasn't weed. It was just, just grass clippings. But I thought it was a genius back then. And another little hustle that I had is I realized that kids didn't understand the concept of money. But because I grew up on the streets and stuff... I knew what money was before anything else. And then so I understood the value of money. So I could stand at the front of the canteen and swap people their $2 coins for my 20 cent coins just because it was a bigger coin, had a bigger number on it. And, you know, I got in trouble a few times, but I'd always work my way back, walk around the back of the building and I'd be back standing in line again, hustling the same thing again over and over. I'm not proud of those moments, but I, I don't know how, like my brain was thinking to get to, to that, but that's the stuff I was doing, yeah. Well, it's obviously different if your home life is different, that you'll be, you'll be seeing different opportunities and different ways to make money. So you, that was primary school. Well, you know, another thing like primary school, is, there's so much there, but I think about it. And um, one thing is I got sick of eating Vegemite and toast every day when all my friends had really good lunches and they had lunch money. And so for me, it was like, make your own break. You know, I was like, well, I want lunch money. I want to be able to eat like the other kids. So then I was there hustling and wheeling and dealing to get lunch money. That's all I was doing. So then I could sit next to everybody else and eat the same stuff as everybody else. But I never asked my parents for anything. And I always knew that they never could give me anything. And then I had to get it myself, even at that age. So that was really interesting. And then another story, like a hustle that I remember back then in primary school was my dad used to give me all these hand-me-down clothes. And um, they were embarrassing. And I remember the principal walked in one day and he said, Jai, like I need you to wear your uniform tomorrow. We have a school shoot. Um, we're going to get some photos taken and please like don't embarrass us, like wear the uniform. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't have any money for uniform, but like I'll talk to my parents. And so, yeah, talk to your parents. So I went home, asked my parents, asked my dad and dad was like, where does he think we're going to get a uniform from? Like just wear these. And he gave me some clothes that were his and put it in perspective. Like I'm like 10 years old and my dad, you know, he's a large man. So I'm wearing these giant jeans that have like, you know, got a seatbelt wrapped around me to kind of keep it up and everything. I looked more ridiculous than ever before. And I walked into the schoolyard that morning 
And the principal seen me from across the yard and he come raging over and fully embarrassed me in front of everyone because he thought I was doing it on purpose. So he was like yelling at me, he humiliated me, told me I had to go get changed and swap some clothes with other people, you know. And like, I just remember that whole conversation is calling me, you know, the poor kid that's doing this and that. And I remember I was like so just hurt by it. And then so I got this photo taken and I was wearing this, like this kid that no one wanted to go near. He was always a smelly kid. And he was the one that gave me his uniform. So I actually wore his uniform. And then after that, I went up to a friend and I was like, man, I'm not going to let this happen again. Let's go get some uniforms. Like, fuck this, you know? So I remember I knew that the principal went out in the afternoon because he'd go around to all the classrooms and stuff. So me and him went into the principal's office and we snuck down underneath uh, where the admin was, you know, receptionist. And we like crawled through the hallways and then to the principal's room. That's where all the new uniforms were. And we just grabbed heaps of them. And then we snuck back out. And then I gave them to all my other friends that were like really poor. And then the next day I walked in. And so the principal's like, someone stole the uniforms. And then me and all the poor kids are walking around with brand new uniforms. And I got a big smile on my face. I'm like, yeah, man, no, I'm looking after myself, you know? And he's like, where'd you find this? I'm like, lost and found. You know, it was just sitting there. A little bit of Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny though. But I was just, it just like, um, I guess it's the same mentality of like, you know, I knew I couldn't ask my parents. I knew I was in a stuck situation. So even back then I was like taking it upon myself getting a group of people together to go on a cause, to go and do something to make it happen for ourselves. And that's why I brought this up yesterday. That's what I see a lot in you that I don't think is, that is obvious to everyone else is you're very much a person that asks for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. And I sort of put the label on you yesterday as rebel with a cause. And I think that really personifies what you're doing is you can, you can still steal shit, but it's only so like, but to make them happy. So you're yeah, aware yeah. of what they want you to do. Fuck them. So the other question is, so that's primary school. What was high school like? High school is hilarious, man. So, so year seven, I don't know how this happened, but my mum was like, you know what? I'm going to get Jai the best education ever. So she booked me into the most expensive school in the area, like private school. So I went to this private school in year seven and it was interesting. It was uh, a very religious school and um, it was a very different world, I think. But one thing was, um, and I know my mom was just, you know, she had the best, my best interest at heart, but she never paid the school fees and my, and the school didn't know we were really poor. So she kind of like fake it till you make it and then let me go there until they finally kicked me out. Cause she was never going to pay, which was a whole year. They let her like, let me be there for a whole year until the end of the year. They're like, well, we have to expel you because you've never paid your school fees. And then I think my mom was like, yeah, well we got the education, you know, so <laughs> Jai's moving up in the world. And then, um, year eight, I actually went to a school, which I kind of hated as well. And, but it was like more of a public school, not the real, the, like the most rough school in the town, but the second most rough school. And I went there for one year and I had another friend that came with me and, um, I just didn't fit in. I don't know why I didn't like the school, but I just did not fit in. I wasn't doing well. And so after that in year nine, like I just gave up school altogether. I did a little bit of homeschooling, but myself and I think my mom and everyone was just like, yeah, we don't need school. But the thing is, I was like, what, 13, 14 years old. And really I do need school. What was home life then? Like, so you were in a teepee in a tent in primary school. Yeah. So this was, um, this was in government housing at this stage. Yeah. Which is an upgrade then. Huge upgrade. Like it was fucking awesome. We felt like we were rich. Yeah. What, what was that like going from, <laughs> I guess, camping 24 seven to then having brick and mortar around you? It's one of the most amazing feelings. Like it felt like we actually won the lotto, like going from living in a tent your whole life to actually rolling up, like getting the phone call saying like, we got a house for you. You ready to move in? We were on a waiting list in the homeless for seven years waiting for that thing. So when we finally got it, I remember the day that we drove up and I remember we pulled in the driveway and I was looking at this giant four bedroom house. Like, you know, now I look at it as small and it's shitty. But I remember like when I was a kid, I was like, I can't believe this is our place. And I couldn't wait to get in, got into the house, we're running around looking at all the rooms and that we couldn't believe that we only had to share our room with one other person, you know, my only, with my brother. I was like, this is amazing. This is a mansion, you know? And then all the kids, all the street kids, like it's all government housing area. So all the street kids came in and, you know, they all introduced themselves and stuff. And I literally felt like we just won the lotto and we're like the richest people on the planet. Like I remember walking back out to the street and I'm like, yeah, we live here. This is a thing. So that was amazing. So once you left the private school, how did you go finishing high school? Well, so I didn't go to school in year nine. And then the school I really wanted to go to was the closest one to our house, but it was also the roughest school. 
Now I had to, I had to sort of um, make my break to get into that school. And what I worked out is I was zoned out of that school. Couldn't go back to the other two because one, I got expelled and the other one, I just wouldn't want to go back, but I wanted my year 10 certificate. Now here's the problem in New South Wales. If you haven't done year nine, then you can't get your year 10 certificate. Like you have to do year nine because it's the, the two years kind of combined together. So I rang up the school and I made an appointment and I had to lie and say, yeah, I finished year nine. Like, cause the schools didn't talk to each other. I was like, I'll get my reports, no problems. So I remember went in without anybody, like not with my mom or anyone, which is unheard of, right? Like you're 15 years old, walking up, having an interview with the principal and then pitching myself on why they should accept me to the school, which they're not allowed to because um, I'm zoned out. And, and second of all, because I didn't even do year nine. And so I lied through my teeth. I'm like, yep, yeah, I've done year nine. It's no problem. And he's like, how's your grades? I'm like, they're totally fine. And he's like, well, unfortunately, like, thanks for coming down. I see the initiative, but you're not actually allowed to be here. And, and I was like, why not? And he's like, well, you zoned out, you know, and the only reason why you'd ever be allowed to be here is because it, if it was a different subject that another school can't provide. And I remember him saying that. And I had the list of things that was at that school. And I remember as soon as he said that was like the opportunity of like, oh my God, I just worked at the crack. Like, there's the crack that I can squeeze through. And so I was like, wait a second. And I pulled up the piece of paper and I was like, it was um, oh, body movement. They had this weird class called body movement and it was just sport, but they called it their like um, body movement, which at the last school, they didn't have that. They called it sport. So straight away, I was like, wait a second. It's funny that you said that because body movement is what I need to get into. I really want to be an athlete and that's the opportunity that I need. The other schools don't provide it. And he's like, well, you didn't say that before. I was like, I didn't realize that I had to show you exactly what I want to work on. And so from there, I submitted in the forms and they had to accept me because it's a government school and it provided the th my career opportunity of where I wanted to go. So then without them even checking my year nine or anything, I come cruising in and I enrolled next Monday and I was walking around school and that was it. You were the new star athlete. I was the new star athlete that sucked at everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't actually picture you oh, being touted as an athlete. I actually have a weird, when I moved from grade two to grade three, I lied that I got my pen license in grade two and I still have weird pangs of guilt about that <laughs> to this day. Did you ever feel guilty about lying to get in or were you just going, nah. fuck the man? It was more so fuck the man, but it was also, not, it wasn't that, like I wasn't like a rebel without a cause. I was a rebel with a cause. So I was really like, the government's not going to give me an opportunity. You know, God's not giving me no opportunities. Dad's not giving me an opportunity. Like no one's going, no one's going to drive me down to the school. So in my mind, it was like me against the world. And so I was just like, how can I get myself in here? Because I need to make it happen for me. There's no one else that's going to help. Uh, yeah, nice. Because I know you didn't finish school, but you went into a trade or you were you a brickies labourer first? Yeah. So, I, so after that, I got a girlfriend at school and then I didn't do that great. And then I realized I don't really need it. And then I got sort of pegged from a lot of friends that it was going to be a dropout and I wasn't going to do anything. The thing was school didn't work for me because I didn't really go through school. So it was hard for me to comprehend that I could sit there and listen to someone talk for 40 minutes or had to stand in line or had to put up my hand or, or there was a wrong way all the time. Like I, I sort of hated these notions of the way that they taught me. And then they would say like, Joe, you got ADD, you, should, you got ADHD, like there's something wrong with you. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with this system. Like why are we sitting here like this? You know, so for me, I never seen it as myself having something wrong. I always seen that it was the box that I was in that was wrong. And I hated that. So from there, I, I did quit school and then I got relentless. Same thing. I needed to get a job. And so I was living at a home at this stage because home life was just hard. There was a lot of domestic violence and stuff. So I was 15 or 16, moved into a house with a couple of friends and I really needed a job and everyone told me, my teachers told me, the career advisor told me, the career advisor told me, Jai, you're not even smart enough to write a resume because you can't read and write. Like you've got no chance out there. And I was like, oh, just watch me. I've got a chance. And like everyone that told me that, like I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to get a job. They're like, there is no jobs in town. If there was, people would have jobs because it was a low socioeconomic area and there wasn't that many jobs. But I knew I'm not one of them that wasn't going to have a job. So every day I would go around ask all my friends if I could borrow a whole bunch of 20 cent coins and I'll go check all the ashtrays of the cars and ask my friends, parents and everyone. And I'll go down to the phone booth and I'll just ring every business going from A to Z until finally someone told me that there was a new construction site happening in town. And they, he heard along the grapevine that they were looking for a laborer and that's all it took. And then I was like, Oh my God, I got a job. I knew there was a job and it's mine. 
And so I went straight into town. I borrowed some money, went straight into town. I bought some work boots and a work shirt. And then I rang up my mom, um, went down the phone booth, asked if I could borrow the car because I got a new job starting tomorrow. Like I was, had conviction. I'm starting tomorrow, mom. Like I got a new job. She's like, oh, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got my boots and everything. I'll come pick the car. I didn't have a license. I wasn't old enough. So I remember riding my BMX over to my mum's house, running in, mom, I got a job. Can I get the car keys? She's like, yeah, sure. Like bring it back tomorrow. All right. I don't know why she said yes. And I run out, jump in the car, drive in the town. And then the next morning, like 6 a.m., because I knew that's what time it all started, um, I drove on the site, walked up all the big tradies and everything, and I went and knocked on the um, construction door. So there was like a side office there. And I remember the big guy looking straight over the top of me because I was so short and, and it was like a step. And he's like looking around and it's early morning, so it's dark. And he's having a meeting in there of architects and everything. And I was like, hey, man, I'm here to start my new job. And I remember him looking at me thinking, why is there a kid on my job site and what is going on here? Anyway, I ended up getting in there and just talking to him and I fully sold myself again. And I was like, I can do this and this. I'm 18. I've got a license. There's my car. Otherwise, how would I have got here? You know, and I full just talked my way into it. And then he gave me a job and paid me $15 an hour, which was unheard of because he had to because I was 18. <laughs> and then... One part of my job was though, is I had to go and buy lunch for everyone, which means I had to drive to town every day, which means I had to borrow my mum's car every day and drive unlicensed without telling anyone. And I barely even knew how to drive, but I had to drive down, you know, go get all the food and then drive back. And that was my job. Man, well, I, I find it so funny because a, a brickies labor is like the colloquial term for someone that does the hardest job. Like <laughs> it was a hard job. Man. I imagine the men you're working with. Mm. Brutal, just yeah. big, brutal dudes. Yeah. Dude, here's a like example of the work that I used to have to do to try and make my break was like, I remember the bricky, it was raining on a, on a Friday and it was a big giant hill. And then the bricky was there swearing and he was like, fucking hell, like the, the bricks have all shown up late. And they had a semi-trailer, like a big truck pulls up and a whole load of bricks. And anyway, it couldn't get up the hill because it was raining. So they just like offloaded this whole truck load all on the side, big Besser blocks, right? Which are really heavy. And then, um, so that was Friday afternoon. And I remember we were working in the rain, so I'm saturated. I've been working hard. And he comes to me on Friday afternoon. And he's like, I want you here before the sunrise. I want every block up here on the hill, you know, by Sunday night. And I was like, oh my God, you're serious? And so, yeah, man, I was like... I had such good work ethic. I was like, fuck it, I'm doing it. Like, you know, I don't care. I'll do whatever I have to. But I remember it was pouring rain. I'm slipping over and I'm carrying like two bricks at a time, like big blocks, one on each hand, all the way up the hill and then back down. And I worked all Saturday to nighttime and then all Sunday sunrise to nighttime until finally the last block. And I was like, oh my God. And then back to work on Monday. But there wasn't anything that was going to stop me. I was like, fuck man, like I'll move the truck if I have to. Well, okay, I've seen it happen where I feel like Whenever someone says something to you, like, you can't do this, it's just fuel on the fire. Yeah. I feel like as, as soon as we have a roadblock here, there's, you see a solution and we get around it in any way there is. Yeah. And that's like how my brain's wired, I guess. Like it just sees, like, I think it, there's always standards and there's a base rate. So it's like, as you, the lower you've been, like you, the higher the standards that you have of like how much you ex expect something of yourself. And also like the base rate is like, I know if I'm not going to help myself or if no one else is going to do it, no one's going to do it. You have to do it. And if you've gone through shit before and you've overcome that, then you know what the base rate is. It's like, well, this ain't hard. This is just like a little thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess like once you've achieved something once, you can do it again. Yeah. It gives you the confidence. Mm -hmm. um, I remember you've, you've spoken about finding some mentors uh, through your trader years. And yeah, one parallel I mentioned to you the other day is that a lot of tradies are, they're, they're solo entrepreneurs mm. quite often. Like they're running their own business. They've, totally. got, they've got an ABN there. They're pitching to clients. They're getting work. And sometimes there is some creative delivery. What did you learn from some of those people and starting businesses working in? And the trade industry is so similar to the creative industry. And when I seen the parallels, I could not believe it. For instance, a lot of the people in the trade industry, a lot of them don't have a degree in anything. A lot of them are hustlers and they made their way. A lot of them have imposter syndrome. A lot of them like, you know, deal through a lot of these things of starting their own business and being scared of going full time and, and stuff like that. And then you go in the creative industry and it's the same things. Like a, a lot of people don't have a degree in anything and they got imposter syndrome and they work for themselves and it took them a long time to get there to work for themselves. And they don't know business. Like tradies don't know business either. So it was an amazing going from one world and then slipping straight into another world and then realizing both worlds are exactly the same, but then worlds apart as well, because I mean, 
both of them judge each other and then both of them think they're so much different and so much better in so many different ways. But really, we're all the same and everything's the same. So is it right in me saying the one certificate you would hold is a electrical apprenticeship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a fully qualified electrician. So you did pass that. You don't have a bit of paper for you. Well, I passed that. I passed <laughs> that, and it took me, I think, three times to pass it. So I had to. Um, same thing. I was like, so determined to pass. I failed the main test, and then I had to go back the next year, and then I failed, and then I had to go back, and then I passed. And I had to get mentoring, and I had to do tutoring, and all that kind of stuff to get there. And I was a laughing stock. The last time I went there, man. I walked in and people were laughing at me and they were like, there's a guy that's failed three times. The only one in history can't pass a thing. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still here and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to get through it. Right. And I remember by this stage, cause my teacher didn't really like me, but by the third time I walked in, I remember him looking at me as I walked through the door and I remember him going like, I think he had respect for me. He's like, he's back because no one comes back. Everyone gives up. And then I passed. And then he was like, you know, well done for doing that. Mm. Well, the, the, the art of showing up, isn't it? Just Yeah, man, because I was never smart enough and I didn't do any schooling or any of that stuff. And I knew that as well. Like it wasn't a surprise for me. Mm. So once you got your apprenticeship, you, I've heard your business name, which is hilarious. Energy Electrical. Energy, yeah, it's still in your ABN now. <laughs> Energy. <Yeah. laughs> um, which is not far removed from like, the Energizer bunny that I see. Yeah. Which is you. But then you went and you, you completely shifted. You went into hospitality. Mm. What was that like? And what made you think, I'm 18 years old. I'm going to run this business. I'm going to employ people older than me. I'm going to make coffees, which I've never done before. Yeah, <laughs> pretty interesting actually. But um, I think for me, like being an electrician was really much like, um, that was me telling myself like, okay, I can tick the box. I can always go back to that. And now I'm safe. That's what I felt. Because if I, I can literally do anything now, and if I ever lost my job, I can just go back to twisting wires and it wasn't a problem. So the first thing was the day I finished my apprenticeship, which, which was the 5th of January. Yeah, I quit my job because I was like, and my boss was shocked because he's like, what do you mean? Like, you just finished apprenticeship, you're going to get a pay rise. I was like, I'm not here for the money, man. Like, I just wanted to get the apprenticeship. I'm out of here. Like, I'm going to go do something with my life. He's like, isn't the job doing something with your life? And I'm like, no, I don't want a job. And so the first thing I did was went and started my own business. And that was an undertaking to go from like, I mean, to put things into perspective, not only did I not know anyone that ran a business before, I also didn't really know anyone that had a job. Because like my dad didn't have a job. My mom didn't have, none of their friends had jobs. Like we were in the real low socioeconomic area where all their friends were all on the government, everything. So the fact that I come to my parents, not only was I like, oh, I just finished my apprenticeship, but I'm like, I'm starting a business. And they're like, well, what does that mean? Like, are you going to, you know, the first thing, are you going to sell weed from the side? Or is, do you have to pay tax? Like, how do you know what to do with the government? I'm like, I don't know, man, but everything's figure outable. Like, I know that. And so I remember you saying you actually gave your father his first taxable job or first yeah. that you knew of. What was he, what was he doing? Dude, my dad was a really good cook and he used to cook up a lot of food. Just like he was the kind of guy that could get any scraps from the kitchen and he would cook up anything and it would taste amazing. So I always remembered that. So when I needed to give him a job, the first thing that came to mind, I was like, he's a good cook. So he could be a chef. So if I started a cafe then he could work in the kitchen and it would be happy days. And, and then my whole thought process, which is still the way I think now, my whole like business plan was, so all I need to do is sell some coffees. And if I sell some coffees at this price, then I'll make enough money and I'll be able to pay everyone. So for example, like my thought process was like for all week, all I need to do is sell 1,000 coffees. And if I sell 1,000 coffees, I'll bring in $3,500 worth of money. And then that means I'll be able to pay my dad and all the staff, and then I'll be able to do something else. So I just need to figure out how to sell 1,000 coffees. So that was like the thought process of how to run a business back then. There was nothing beyond that or any, you know, there's nothing around that or anything else. It's just, that was it. And that, well, that, that mindset's obviously changed, obviously changed now. Because I mean, what you went off after that business, it, it failed. It tanked, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk us through what you learned from that failing? Because I know you said you've had your worst and best day all in one was mm. when, that, when that business closed. When it closed. Well, you know, I actually think uh, this may sound really vain of me, but I think that business would have been successful if I didn't close it. You know, because I closed it because we got to a point when we couldn't get any more money. I couldn't put in any more time and I was burning bridges and stuff like that. But at the same time, it was also 
the day before it closed, it was also the most successful day we ever had, which I think it brought in like $25,000 or something like that. And I was like, whoa. And it was, it was so big. We ran like a little festival out there and we had like, you know, really good musicians and we sold tickets and we did all the things. And um, it was so successful and everyone's walking around going like, Jai, this, you've turned this into a big successful business. It's amazing. We had hundreds of people there. And I think for me, I straight away was just like, yeah, I'm going to close. This is the last day that we're open actually. And people were shocked because they're like, I feel like you just opened. So now I've been open for a year. How come you guys haven't been here? You know, so it was kind of like that. And it was like, it was too late by that stage. Did you break even or would you, did you run it a lot? No, I lost, I lost a lot of money. So that was, I guess, I guess it was an education on finance. We learned what not to do. I know that you actually took the time and you went and raised, sort of raised capital on your own. You went, what, you went to WA and you were there for a couple of years working in isolation or a year. How long were you there for? I went to Queensland Mines and WA all together, probably two years. Yep. So what was that like? I mean, from what I know of working away, it's, it's a massive struggle, but the rewards are, I mean, they're bountiful. They're plenty. You've sort of, mm. you probably had more money than you ever knew what to do with. How would someone manage having, say, 100K in the bank when you've gone from having negative whatever when you start yeah, the well, business? Well, I actually never got to 100K in the bank because one, one reason being is because I was like paying off all the debts that I had. And then I saved up all my money and I went traveling. Like that was my big thing. So I spent a lot of time overseas whenever I could. But spending time in isolation, like that's actually what it is. It, like the best way to explain it, it was a two-year prison sentence. You know, like it's hard to explain in any other way because if you imagine it, like just to paint a picture, you go and stay in a camp. In the camp, you have a room. The room's called a donga. So the donga has a toilet in the corner, has a shower, and then it has a single bed, and then you've got a little tiny TV. Now you're in there. You're not really allowed out at nighttime. You're in there until 4 a.m., and then a bus comes around, picks you up, takes you to the dry mess where you go and make some food, and then you get dropped off where you got to go and work for the day, and then you get dropped off back of the dry mess to go have dinner. And then you go to a gym, which is, you can go to the gym, which is, which was just like a lot in the car park with razor wire all around it with the most toughest, meanest looking dudes that you, you never want to go there. And then you get picked up and you get dropped back off at your donger. And if, if you've been good, you can have a couple of beers there and talk to people, but that's pretty much it. What did you mean by you can't go out at night? Well, because you, well, because where I was in the desert, it was literally just the desert. So it's like, you could walk to, the one next door and knock on the door or something, but then someone will just be watching TV or something. So, and also, you know, there'll be restrictions on noise and if you're drinking all that kind of stuff. So people will be monitoring the hallways to make sure that like people are not out drinking and doing all that kind of stuff. God, it sounds like a summer camp. So yeah, it's basically prison. Like it's the best way to describe it. Like, yeah. And morale is low and like everyone just talks about when they get out of here, I'm going to spend all my money, do all the things like, is this worth it? It's what everyone talks about it's hard man and it, it, like it was really hard for me because it's at the age when I'm like what 22 23 where I feel like I should be out and about in the world doing all the things and all of a sudden because of a decision that I made in my business now I'm locked up and that's what I felt like and I was like I have to work to pay back the banks to pay back the people and and I wasn't even getting any of the money for it that's what it felt like or in hindsight and reflection like was it worth it everything I've done is worth it yeah It's all built me up to who I am now. Like I can't change. There was nothing I can change in my past or would I change because every experience gets you to where you are, gets you that little bit smarter. And I wouldn't be where I am without all those things. So I know you picked up a camera when you were at the mines and then what followed that was a trip to the US. Were you writing on the wall your escape plan or like did you, were you, were you, were you planning this to get out or how did that come about to go from electrician in the mines to go shoot some weddings in the US. Yeah, it was never an escape plan because because straight after the mines, I actually went and started my own business as well, which then that was Energy Electrical. So like the the sort of the thought process was um, like, go and be an electrician, go work for someone. As soon as I did, I was like, fuck yeah, now I can quit my job because now I can go on and move some, do something else. So I'm going to start a business. And then I did that and then I failed that. Then I was like, oh, I have to go work for someone again. Then after that, I was like, sweet, now I don't owe any money. I'm all good. Like, fuck this, I'm quitting. I'm going to go work for myself again. And so I started my next business, which was Energy Electrical. And then that was a hustle, man. I used to cruise around door knocking everywhere, like door-to-door salesperson, just trying to sell myself, like putting flyers into everything, you know, talking to every builder. Literally, I was just hustling. 
And like, I'd hate to be anyone in the town that I was in because they all knew me straight away because I wouldn't let anyone not know who I am and what I'm doing and how much I can work for them, you know, for how cheaply I can do it and how much I can undercut everyone to make it happen and whatever. Well, it's, it's amazing. Like, I mean, flyers were pre-social media. Yeah. So it's, it's the same way you're showing up on social media and then you're going in their letterbox. Well, that's the funny thing is because everything that I did, like, I mean, just weird little hacks, right? So when I had my cafe, I worked out on the council what kind of signs you're allowed to stick on the side of the road. And then I worked out you're allowed to put in tourist signs that look like information signs that look like there's been done by the council. So I actually went and got these road signs made that looks like they're proper road signs for cars, but they're branded as tourist information signs. And I put those and I got those concreted in at nighttime along the road. So it looks like the council came through and did all these, but they were my illegal signs. <laughs> and like, and then, so then it brought more traffic into my, into my cafe. And so those signs were there for a long time, even after the cafe. Oh, like- but it's so funny because I was, the thing was, I was annoyed that the government or the council wouldn't put signs for my cafe because it was in a tourist destination. So I just took it upon myself and I did it myself. And obviously all my competition, the other cafes were all annoyed because they're like, why does Jai get signs? And we get no signs. <laughs> Oh, like three billboards outside of Byron Bay. Yeah, basically, yeah, all coming to my cafe. And then the same thing, man, soon as, when I was an electrician, it was just like, who do I know or who knows me was the most important thing. And so I did let it, like after work, I would work all day, like 12 hours. And then I remember I'd come home, Lily's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I've got to go back out. And I'd stack the boot up for my car of flies. And then I would just drive around, you know, for the next couple of hours you know, eating a music bar for dinner and then just like putting flyers in people underneath the windscreens or in letterboxes or whatever I had to do. So that does, I mean, that does have parallels to the modern day of yeah, how we use social media because your strategies, your strategies have varied quite a bit. I mean, everything evolves though, you know? So, I mean, back in the, I mean, I had a, I had a MySpace for my cafe. That's funny. <laughs> you know? Can you, can you remember the song you had on there? No, I don't remember. That was one thing I remember was always you had to, you had to pick a song for MySpace. Because <laughs> from there... I actually didn't realize that timeline too, where you went, went to the mines, yeah. then you started, started the business. Yeah. And then, so that's when you then went overseas. Is that correct? Yeah. And then, so I did some overseas travel, like I spent some time in India and Thailand and Vietnam and did heaps of stuff. But in between all of that, one of the first jobs that I had when I was in the cafe, I actually t- had to take on an electrical job just to keep the business open. And so the boss from that job heard that I had my business going and he knew that I was like out there just pounding down doors trying to get work. And so he offered me a job and he was like, look, man, I can give you good pay right now. If like, we want you to come and join our team and close down your business. So I kind of waited up and I was like, man, I'm working hard and I'm not getting too much going on here. And to be honest, that sounds like the good life. So I joined, I closed down Energi and I joined his team. And then they moved me to Melbourne and they're like, here's a big project. And then I got upgraded straight away. Like I moved up the corporate ladder when I was like, I was 25, I think. It was unheard of the job that I had because I was engineering 350 houses. Like I was doing the engineering work for it. I was doing the civil work. Um, I was a project manager. Like I was doing everything and I got paid well for it because I moved my way up. And then, yeah, I was there for like two years, I think. Is, so that guy that hired you, is he the person that you were using reference to your mentor? Yeah. He, he was an amazing guy. Yeah. So and what influence did he have on you? So he was a guy that, um, he was an immigrant, came in from Holland, I think. He was Jewish background and he came in to New Zealand and he started like a huge discount chain where he'd sell like VCRs and all this kind of stuff and he'd import things in. The funny thing with him is he'd been bankrupt three times by the time I met him. And then he's been a millionaire three times, separate times. And when I first met him, he was just went bankrupt and he was just making his money back. So he really caught my imagination. And I was like, wow. Like, and he was like 60. And I was like, this dude's gone all in and he's 60 and he's out there hustling. And I was so inspired by it. Like I could not look, you know, could not get my eyes away from the work ethic. This, I felt like this old dude had. I was like, if he can do it, man, if he can be, if he can start from nothing at 60 and become a millionaire, I'm like, I have no excuses. Like he can do it. I can definitely do it. And he would tell stories like when he lived in the car of him and his wife and they had no money. And the stories where he started his electrical business was just amazing. Like he would get a shipping container for all his tools, put on site. And then when everyone else like left site, he'd sneak back on site and he was living inside the shipping container in the middle of the job site. And no one knew, you know, like he, he was like hustling hard. And then whilst I was working there, he became a millionaire again. And by the time I finished, he was, I think he was like, yeah, I think my net worth's now like six, seven million or something. 
And I was like, this is amazing. And so he would tell me, he was like, man, like you can be and do whatever you want to do and be, you know? So he really opened up my mind and made me realize so many things, like unlocked all my limiting beliefs because before him, I believed that electricians couldn't make money. You needed to have an education. You had to have a degree in something. Otherwise you're not worth anything. Like I had all these limiting beliefs and he was the one that unlocked me and said, no, you don't. Like who, who told you that? Where did you learn it? What kind of results do they have? Why would they be teaching that if they don't even know themselves? And he really sort of broke that down. And then it made me realize, like just seeing someone else do it, that was in my situation. I was like, fuck, it's possible. So was he the last boss you had then? How did, well, how was that conversation with saying, hey man, I'm going to head over to the US? Like, uh, so I, well, before I went to the US, I actually did some travel while I was working for him. And so he would never let me leave. So he would be like, no, nah, Jai, like, um, you don't have enough holidays. And I'd be like, okay, so just letting you know I am leaving and I'm quitting. Yeah, you know, I'll quit on the 2nd of September. And he's like, what do you mean? Well, I'll just quit. So I'll quit my job and I'll go traveling for a bit. And then I'll come back and I'm like, all right, I'm back. And I walk back on the job site. He's like, no, nah, you quit. I was like, yeah, no, but I'm back now. And so I did that like three times <laughs> until he started getting the shits. But the day that I rang him to quit, he was like so happy for me. And I, and I knew that um, he was... I knew he would be, but it was just amazing to hear him say like, oh yeah, like that's amazing. You're going to kill it. Like you're going to do so well. And I was like, his name was Dick. I was like, Dick, how come you're not upset? And he was like, I always knew you're going to leave. Like someone like you won't stay in a job like this for that long. And I was just lucky enough to have you for as long as that you're here, but you're always going to go out and do something bigger and better. and, And like, you could never tame your ambition. Like that wasn't a thing. When he said someone like you, what do you reckon he means directly by that? I just meant like he knew that I had a fire and he knew that like I was already at the very top of the pyramid in his corporate ladder, you know? So uh, like he's the boss, but then below that, like I didn't answer to anyone because I was the boss. So he had mutual respect of like, yeah, anyone that's like ambitious and willing, they don't stay in a job like that because they're going to do something. So I guess that brings us to the USA. Yeah. So, cause I know you, cause you hit up people before you went over there. Cause I, yeah. I don't, I didn't know you back then. I was probably still in high school back then as well. But from what I understand, you weren't shooting that much prior, were you? Were no, you getting, not really. You're getting into film, you're getting into film photography. Then you contacted what Ryan Teague had and what Indie Film Lab. And you just went over there and started just network, meeting people. Yeah. Networking. Yeah. How, how did you get the confidence to do that? And what, what platforms were around then? Yeah. So I was using Instagram. It was very early days, 2013. I think Instagram came out in 2011, but it got popular in 2012. So by 2013, people felt like they were already missing the boat on it because it was like, oh, this new thing. So I was using that. And for me, I was very naive. And that was the thing that allows you to get into a lot of situations because I didn't know there was amazing photographers. I didn't know there was a big industry. I didn't know there was any rules or there was, you know, there was influences. I didn't know any of those things. So for me, I just went all in on myself and I was just like, and I also didn't want to know. I was like, okay, so I know there's stuff out there and like, whatever, I don't care because I was so concentrated on me working on me and comparing myself to me and I always do. So I also knew if I looked around, I'd be as bad as everyone else, you know, because a lot of times people look around for inspiration, but I look around, I'm like, okay, if I look at at my neighbors, I'm only going to be as good as them because that's as far as I can imagine. So if I don't look at it, I can imagine so much further and I will get so much further. So back in those days, like someone from Melbourne, like me, there there was like maybe two others that were international wedding photographers. There was no one. And they were like the world's best. I remember them. And so I was like, I want to be an international wedding photographer and I want to be that right now. And so that was my train of thought. And then I did it. Yeah. I, I like sold all my stuff. And then I went to the US and then I shot some weddings and I met all the people and I did all the things and that really made my break. Mm. So I think, I think that story too is quite familiar to a lot of people. But one thing, it always blew my mind. I remember when Morgan first started working for you, with you and he was going like, yeah, yeah, Jai's, Jai's also doing workshops. He's also an educator. How did you transition from shooting what, what a handful of weddings with 12 yeah. months or two years? Yeah, yeah. And then going, I'm not going to teach the rest of them how to do it. Like, do- it was like actually a really smooth transition, but it's, um, I wasn't teaching them photography. I was teaching them business. And so what happened was even when I was electrician, 
I realized like all the tradies on the job site didn't know business. And for some reason, business to me was second nature because it was just like the hustles on the street. You know, just like when I was growing up and swapping the little coin for the big coin, like that's what business is now. It's just trading up. So I would always have extensive conversations with all my tradie friends on how to start a business, how to run it, what you need to do, how you should do it better. And I realized like I was giving so much advice. Sometimes people wouldn't listen to me though, because they'll be like, Jai, you don't know what you're talking about. You've never had a successful business. You've only been bankrupt before. Like, you know, please don't give me advice. And that used to really kind of shit me because it made me second question myself as well. It's like, do I actually know? I don't know. So um, I did realize after a while, like I do know business and I can, like there, there's nothing stopping me. But when I came into the creative space, it was the same thing all over again. Like no one knew business. Literally back in 2013, man, like it was, it was hilariously bad. Like people just thought, if I take photos, someone's going to find me one day. And that was build it and they'll come. That was their train of thought. Everyone's mindset was on that. And I was like, wow, not only can I dominate the space because it's easy when no one knows business, but also I really need to help everyone. Like I have to, because if they're stuck like this, like, the, like what kind of industries, this is not a fun industry if everyone's stuck. So I knew straight away for me to grow in this industry and be excited about it. I had to actually grow the industry. Mm. So, okay. So you grew the industry. How many people, is there anyone that did any of your workshops that's now involved in the business map? Yeah, there's lots of them. Lots of people that did my first workshops uh, now in the business map and they've been with me ever since. And I know, cause I know the business map is the business map. I don't know if anyone doesn't know, like you don't actually teach people how to use your F-stop or take a photo. No, nothing to do with photography. You're teaching them business and it's what blows my mind. And all the results that you're getting and we get is people making 100K out of nowhere. Yeah. How many photographers do you reckon would have been making 100K five years ago? Like, Oh man, in 2013, I know this for a fact because, because I was in circles with Jonas Peterson, um, Sam Blake, like a lot of amazing photographers. And I seen like into the books of, of some amazing photographers and stuff. And I was in those circles of everyone talking. Now, if you made six figures from your business back then, you were like, whoa, like you must be one of the best in the world. It was like, it was really much like that. And so, you know, the fact that I made six figures in my first year of business, it wasn't normal. Like if I told people back then, people, one, didn't believe me, two, tell me to stop bragging. Like it's impossible. Like all these things. I'm like, no, I actually did it. So now when I see people do it, like I know six figures is a different amount now because of inflation and everything like that, but it's still amazing to see that people can do it so fast that they don't realize what it was like before there was all this kind of education and stuff. Because now new standards, like now they're like, well, I started as a photographer and I signed up to the course and then I made six figures. I was like, sweet, you know, but they don't realize like what it was like only five years ago when it was like, oh no, everyone wanted to keep the secrets to themselves. No one wanted to help you. It was very closed off. It was very lonely. And people just didn't make money. You went from workshops and then into building the biggest online photography course in the world. Was that spurred on by anything external? I remember it was, it was COVID when you and Morgan were slaving away and doing it. Was that in the back of your mind prior to that? Or was that just circumstantial? How did that come about? Yeah, it, it was a few different things. Like the pandemic fast-tracked it, but it was already in the works. Like We already talked about it before that. So we already had it in the works. And there was a few different reasons. One is... I, I was running workshops since 2015 to 2020, so five years, and they were sold out every time. And I'd do them around Australia and New Zealand and we're sort of expanding out. There was a lot of travel involved. And I used to think like, geez, you know, there's a lot of travel, a lot of time and everything, which was fine. But what I realized is I started listening to all the students and then they would say, Jai, it's really expensive to come to your workshop. Not because you charge so much, but because I had to get a babysitter, I had to get a flight, I had to get accommodation, I had to get a hire car. And I'm it started making me realize there was a big pain point. And I was like, okay, that's, it's a really inefficient way for people to learn, to come and sit there and watch me talk for two, two days. The other thing was it kind of gave me the shits that I would sit there and talk and teach them for two days and I'd have like a good connection with everybody. But then after that, they were just gone because, you know, they were just left to their own devices to go and learn whatever and do whatever. And I couldn't actually track their progress or help them along the way. So I felt like that was inefficient as well. It's like, should I make it three days? Should I make it four days? And I'm like, no, nah, it's not the answer. It just gets more expensive. So then I started thinking it really has to be online. And when I started thinking it's got to be online, I was really thinking like, I know in the future, like online courses and stuff are going to be huge, but right now no one wants them. So I need to be in a position right now. And I kind of timed it. I was like, right now is when I believe it's going to be the perfect time to release a course 
we might be just like maybe six months premature, but I think this is the time. So that's basically how it worked out. And then COVID hit and everything. And then that fast tracked the six months because prior to that, it was, would have been six months to 12 months until we were like in the world where people were like more acceptive of online education. But because people were just sitting at home, they started getting conditioned, like people started getting conditioned by watching more YouTube and watching more courses and and being on Zoom more and stuff like that and understanding you can't travel to workshops and things. So it really did fast track the whole, that product, but also all my education. And so this is where I sort of first come on board with you directly. So I, in 2017, I was helping out with photo booths and then I just bought a DSLR camera for the first time and Morgan said, hey man, we're going to do this wedding photography summer. We need to do behind the scenes documentary footage. Come film us. Let's make this thing happen. I was so fucking blown away by, it was just an idea. It was still an idea. It was two months away and you were going, we should get this person to speak. And like, what does that look like? Like, how do we stream this? Morgan was pulling cords and putting out this thing, like the Atmos, I don't know what you call it. Just like this. It was like he's driving a spaceship. And I was looking around in amazement that two guys had put all this together and how did you envision that happening? And were you aware that you were about to build and produce the biggest online workshop for creatives that ever? No, I, I, yeah, I didn't know that was going to be that successful, to be honest. I, I did have a intuition. I did have like a feeling it was going to be really successful for a few different reasons. Like one was I realized when everyone came to my workshop, I was like, man, if I, when I teach people, people are blown away by my ideas, the way that I teach, how easy it is to digest. And then they walk away and they tell their friends and then the next one gets sold out because they're like, my friend came and they said it was life-changing. So, you know, I needed to come as well. So when the summer came around, I was trying to work out, I was like, how can I blow up education and make it really affordable, really accessible to everyone on the planet? Because all I need to do is teach more people. And if I teach more people, they will get the same reaction because it doesn't matter if I'm getting paid or not. They will like, they will be able to learn from me, learn something. And then they'll see like online education is good. Then I started thinking like, well, what, how can I do that? Like, it's not about selling more tickets to a workshop because workshops are expensive and, and there's, you know, there's limitations there. It's not about selling more courses because people won't buy courses until they understand like that education is good. So then I started thinking like, what if I put on an event and I'll make it huge and I'll put in as much money as I need to and I'll do whatever and I'll sell tickets insanely cheap for $7. Like, what if I can do that on the sole purpose that I want to reach and connect and teach as many people on the planet as I can. And I'm going to run as much into Facebook ads as I can to reach all those people. So that's basically as far, like that was the idea that came about. And then I rang Morgan and told him, he said, oh, I think that's a really good idea. And then um, from there, like that was the mission, but I didn't know if it was going to be successful or not. And it just happened to be like the perfect storm. And I timed everything perfectly where there was no other time in history where that event could have taken place and could have taken off the way that it did. I don't think by anybody else in any scenario, which is amazing. Yeah, it was it was impressive. Like, a, what, 8,000 tickets the first Yeah, 8,000 people, which is amazing back then. I mean, it's amazing now, but, <laughs> but think about it. It was an online conference in, you wouldn't even think there's 8,000 wedding photographers. So at the time, it felt like there was every wedding photographer on the planet was there, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> and that's one thing that's really surprised me is I've always thought that the audience is going to cap out soon. But what surprises me and amazes me is I think you've actually created a platform that people, it's introducing more people to the market. Oh, totally. Like you've got people that have never shot a wedding that are getting 6K or 100K with, with the bookings before they actually click a button, hit yeah, the shutter. It's amazing, huh? Mm. Yeah, they're booking out work before they even have a portfolio. And so another thing I was going to ask you about, so how does that change your mind? So I've so I help out with your Instagram and your content and I see messages and testimonials flooding in where people are praising Jesus Christ and like people just Jesus Christ people people love it like there's holy scripture <laughs> there's holy scripture in those DM comments and like did that change your mindset at all like I think my head would explode if people were thinking I could walk on water nah like I don't think it's real interesting because for me like I don't see any of it as a result of what I've done like it's I guess like imagine if you were an actor and someone falls in love with the character, not the actor, you know? So it's, it's kind of like that. It's um, people are falling in love with the idea that they can listen to someone that's like-minded and then they went out and did the work themselves. 
and they love that idea. And it's not me actually doing the work for them. So I'm still doing the same thing as I did in 2015, spreading the same message, still teaching mindset like I've always done. And I haven't really changed any of the core beliefs that I have. I've never tried to change it to fit into the trend or what's going on or anything. So I think with that, there's been a shift. And, and then what happened is, this is the amazing thing though. I was always like sort of, in 2015, 16, 17, 18, I taught a lot of mindset and I was always sort of upset that people didn't put a lot of weight onto it. And so it was before the time. Then when I started really talking about it on my podcast and I was teaching it about it all the time, I noticed other educators started teaching it as well. And then it become really trendy and a buzz thing. And then all of a sudden that was at the same time as my course and everything. And then they're like, yeah, Jai teaches mindset. And I'm like, yeah, like I've been teaching mindset the whole time, but it feels like I've jumped on the buzz. But I'm like, it's now popular. And so I'm finally in the right spot where it's caught up to whatever it needs to be. Well, you've actually really oddly been recognized recently by Creative Mornings Australia. And your talk title is on spirituality. Yeah. How spiritual are you? And what are your views on spirituality? And how are you, how are you putting your spin on it? Because I know, I know you don't really meditate. Like that's the spirituality I'd picture first. Mm. Um, there's so many different levels of spirituality and it's so different for everybody. I think a lot of people associate spirituality with religion. I believe they're so different. Spirituality is, is equivalent to like, it's like a belief system and, and religion's a business, you know? So it's like the thing that sells the belief system. So the belief system for me is like, well, you can go rogue and you can make up your own thing and, and it can be based off so many different inputs from different religions or from, you know, different gurus, different experiences, so many different things. And so for me, I had, I grew up in the Hare Krishna religion when I was really young and I learned some really fundamental things that ch- and shifted and changed my mindset. But one thing that really changed my mindset was realizing if anyone ever talked to me about God, I always realized that I was like, God's too busy with all the people that are struggling to have time for me. You know, so that was my big thing. I was like, God's too busy, man. Like if God was around, he'll be helping you first. You need it, you know? Like like I think about my dad, I'm like, dad, you needed help from God, not me. You know, my mom, anyone. So I always thought that. I was like, I'm on the bottom of the rung. If God was around, like, man, there's a long waiting list before they get to me. So that kind of told me that I'm like, I can't wait around for God because, because I'm simply not good enough, you know, stand out enough for God to take notice of me being there. And my problems are not big enough probably for, for him to take notice. The second thing was in the Hare Krishna religion, you get taught that God's within all of us. And there's an illustration, there's a book, and it shows like Krishna in the middle of your heart in every single person. And when I seen that, it was a mindset shift for me because it was like, oh my God, there I was thinking like, I needed to externally try and find God and he's, you know, I'm not good enough for him. But if he's inside me, then I just need to, if he believes enough in me to be inside me, then I better believe in myself because I'm, you know, I'm the temple for, to hold that. And so it made me realize that I need to, I need to believe in myself and back myself. So it was really not worshiping myself, but realizing that like, I have everything inside me that I need and I don't need anything from any outside side um influence and so then i could double down on myself and that gave me the courage throughout my whole career to back myself to make things happen for myself whenever i needed to to make my own break you know to have the courage to knock on the door and ask for the job like whatever it is because i'm like well god's there that's all i need and that is interesting because i just asked you about how all these amazing testimonials and feedback works on you like how you process that and it's it's not through a place of ego it is through self-belief which you've explained to me is they're two separate things. Totally. And so having like egos, it's like you're trying to get caught up with the likes and do, you know, whatever it is, whatever metric that makes us feel better and sleep better at night. But having the self-belief is completely different. And you can be an introvert with self, like high self-belief. You can be insecure of a high self-belief. Like, you know, that's not the same. You can be an imposter of this high self-belief. For me, like my high self-belief is like, I test a lot of things. I know my capabilities. And then I know my resourcefulness. So even if I don't know the answer, even if I can't read the book, even if, if I can't read a book, man, if I can't read, I can, I know I can find someone that can read to me. You know what I mean? So it's not like I'm ever worried that I'm like, Oh, but the book, I can't read. It's not an excuse. I'm like, well, there's 7 billion people on the planet can read so they can read me something. You know what I mean? So there's always an answer to the problem. Yeah. Cool. I think it's, we've done a really good timeline of how you've got to from where you are to where you are now, where you started, where you are now. Is there any parallels that you can see from that little boy in the teepee to now living in Abbotsford, drive around that Range Rover? 
(laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of parallels. I think a lot of people think you change when you get more opportunities or get more money or you get more something, but you like nothing changes. You need to be happy when you're the boy living in the tent, you know, to be happy to be the man living in Abbotsford, the Range Rover, you know? And so I think a lot of people, I've had, I've got friends now and they go, Jai, I'm so surprised because you seem just as happy as you've always been. I thought you'd be really sad because you got money now. There's no correlation between happiness and money. It just doesn't make any sense. So for me, yeah, the parallels are, um, I still think the same. I still operate the same. I still looking for the same hacks, the same shortcuts. I'm still trying, I still realize no one's going to help me for anything. I still realize there's no one giving me opportunities. There's no door knocks and I have to make it all myself. And I can't blame anybody else for anything that I don't have, or the opportunities that I don't get. And I need to know that it's my fault because I didn't wake up and didn't create a new opportunity. This conversation started out with like in parentheses a content convo. And we would, like, what I really wanted to communicate was your, was your rebel with a cause aspect of life. Mm. And is there anything you, wanted to, anything you wanted to clear up that people might misjudge you on or what you just want people to know? I think the whole rebel with the cause thing for me is, um, of course, I've got to acknowledge that I grew up in a, in a hard, you know, a hard neighborhood. Sometimes it felt like it got harder. And sometimes a lot of that comes back up and then I start getting a little bit rebellious and I, and I start thinking like, no, who can tell me that I'm not worthy? I'm not good enough and, and all this kind of stuff. So I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I've always had that chip. And I've always been out to prove to myself mostly that I am good enough, that I don't have to listen to anybody else, don't have to listen to the haters, the naysayers, the non-believers, you know, the people that say be realistic. I don't need to listen to them because I keep proving to myself that I don't need to. And I think that's really important. So I think everything that I do even now, as childish as it may seem, it still stems back to me just proving my own self-worth to myself. And I think that's important for me to know.